This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. I get concerned if you have a situation where the dynamics of an outbreak in an area are such that you are not seeing that gradual over 14-day decrease that would allow you to go to phase one, and then if you pass the checkpoints of phase one, go to phase two and phase three. So that's the head of the U.S. COVID-19 task force, Dr. Anthony Fauci, talking about the considerations for areas that want to reopen. I mean, that's a nice plan that he's outlining there. Doesn't sound like a lot of jurisdictions, though, in the United States are following that plan when it comes to reopening. For more on that, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So the way Dr. Fauci just outlined it, though, that doesn't seem like some states are following those rules. No, there are many states that aren't following these rules. And in fact, we're seeing some of the states that are rushing to reopen start to see an increase in their case counts of COVID-19. And that really has been the fear. That's why this gated criteria was laid out more than a month ago to allow states to uh, follow kind of a phased and gradual re-entry into normal life. And without that happening, there is a risk that the U.S. could find itself in a place that we're seeing through parts of Germany, China and South Korea, where after curves were flattened, case numbers are now starting to increase again. Right. Like in places like Tennessee and Texas, numbers are still quite high, even though they're all kind of reopening, aren't they? Yeah, numbers are quite high. And there was some unpublished CDC data that came out just a couple of days ago that shows that there are dozens of cities across the U.S., particularly in the heartland. Some are bigger cities, some are rural, uh, that are posting increases over a seven-day period uh, of about 72%. And in one Kentucky town, uh, they posted an increase of 650% over a seven-day period. And that is the risk. Right. And so nothing is really, it sounds like, slowed down. What about in places like uh, in, in Los Angeles, where I understand the mayor has also been kind of playing down some of these recommendations? Well, so we are actually seeing uh, an increase to the mitigation efforts through parts of California. LA, uh, the, the L.A. County area is going to be under a stay-at-home order now for the next three months uh, to try and curb uh, and flatten any of the, the, the newly projected cases that are coming out of the area. But we're also learning that there are going to be a, a number of California universities that aren't going to open their campus campuses in fall. It's only May. They're facing criticism for that. But they're simply trying to say, look, we don't know what's going to happen in the summer. We heard Dr. Fauci say that, you know, younger people remain at risk. So they're trying to do what they can to mitigate any spread months and months down the road now. It's so strange, though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got all the politicians in some of those states saying we're going to do it, we're going to reopen. But yet big companies, big corporations are telling their workers not so fast. You know what? We're okay with the way things are. Yeah, we're seeing that with uh, with meat processing plants that are trying to ensure that their workers come in to work uh, and keep meat lines full uh, across the country. We're also seeing that now with Tesla, with Elon Musk saying that his company should be considered an essential service, even though very few people are buying expensive cars right now. Uh, but we're hearing from people inside uh, the the uh, the Tesla factory that they simply aren't comfortable standing in a line next to each other uh, because precautions aren't being put in place. Musk is saying, look, if anybody's going to get arrested, it should be me. And the county and health department are simply saying, you don't have the right to open, shut everything down. The president, though, is on the side of Musk. Right. And yet big tech companies like Google and Facebook and others are saying, you know what, just keep working from home. And that's how we're going to keep it for the foreseeable future. Including Twitter telling its employees that they may be able to work from home permanently, which, you know, this could be the new way that that companies operate going forward. It's lower overhead because you don't have buildings anymore. Uh, And, 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 you know, this could be kind of that model that we start to see spill out of Silicon Valley and push its way across the country. 
So it sounds like even though some politicians want it one way, companies may be resisting and doing doing the exact opposite. Yeah, I mean, and that it leads to that mixed messaging and confusion that Americans have been facing for the last couple of months now, because you have, you know, a dictation coming from the president, you have it being countered by the leading health experts like Dr. Fauci, and then you have businesses saying, well, the government shouldn't be able to tell us what to do. Uh, and that's how you end up with with residents being confused and a possible spread of a virus when some people simply aren't paying attention to what the necessary facts are. So true. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Yeah, lots of mixed messages down in the U.S. for sure. Politicians saying one thing, companies doing something else, and health officials, I'm sure, stuck in the middle in a lot of those jurisdictions. We'll have uh, and be hearing more about that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, time for us to check in with Nikki Reitmeyer and say good morning. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I just wanted to take a look at a couple stories happening out of the BC interior. One story in particular, I read this and it just, it really, really bothered me. I don't think there's anything about this story that isn't unsettling. So I just wanted to make sure that we had a chance okay. to, to talk about it. So this is the story that you may have heard in the news briefly a short while ago, but in Kelowna at the start of March, in the middle of the night, a homeless man was found brutally beaten, and I mean brutally, brutally beaten in an alleyway. Police found this guy suffering from severe injuries. He was transported to hospital. Now, charges have just been laid in this case. Charges were laid against a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old, David Comerfield and Zachary Galbert. They've been charged with attempted murder. You got a 19-year-old charged with doing something so heinous. I mean... There's nothing about the story that isn't sickening. Yeah, it is actually just automatically. It's just why, why, what is like, what was going on here? Yeah, what what goes on with a 19 year old that you end up doing something like this? I mean, it's so, it's really upsetting. So I, I wanted to call up the Kelowna Gospel Mission and see how this has been affecting their members, how they've been doing with this news. So I spoke to shelter manager Phil Watman, and he said that. The guests at his shelter, they had heard the story and that it had been causing them some fear. Clientele or guests that stay at the shelter were talking about it. I mean, it's the idea that they couldn't really go alone during certain times of the night and just kind of getting surprised by someone in an attack. So it did bring some worry. Oh, man, Nikki, with everything else that's going on in the world already, and especially for for homeless people who have that on top of it to worry about COVID-19, this too? Absolutely. Living with two fears, right? You have the fear of COVID-19 and then you have the fear of just being attacked if you're out sleeping rough in an alley. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to fathom why two people would do such a heinous crime. So I asked him. You know, I wouldn't know what's going on through these people's minds. I mean, it could be, you know, they feel power over it or there's that view that these people are worth less, which is unfortunate. And so they take advantage. Yeah, and that's such an important statement in itself that people who are experiencing homelessness are not worth less than anyone else. Absolutely not. I mean, we have some great people and, you know, it's just, it's it's a horrible stigma that happens and uh, some people take advantage of that. Mm, That is terrible. All right. So more to come on that story, I would imagine, Nikki. Yeah, I believe that we'll be hearing more about that story too. But 
Uh, I, I don't want to dwell on it. it. It's a it's a terrible story, and I think that it you know it's worth talking about. I want to bring your attention now to a story of a Kelowna student who's graduating this year. She's in grade 12, and she's trying to do something positive for her grad class. So like many grade 12 students, she's finding herself unable to celebrate her final year the way she wants to. I mean, you think about all the movies that these kids have seen over the years, that we've seen over the years, of that moment when you get to walk across the stage for your graduation. You throw your cap in the air. And then for these kids, of course, they've seen the movies. It's all the parties and everything that follows, right? That they but really want to take part in. On the other and hand, though, they have a story to tell for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you think you had it tough? I graduated in the COVID-19 year. That's what that's what I had to deal with. Yeah, but that's a miserable story. I mean, that, that's the old, I had to walk up, to, you know, I had to walk to school uphill both ways in the fallen snow. You want to tell some great story about the wild thing that happened at your graduation. Maybe how you met your future spouse or something like that at your graduation. But so this, this student, her name is Allie Wiley, and she's from Rutland Senior Secondary. She has started a petition, which currently has over 2,000 signatures, to try to do something a bit more fun for their graduation ceremony as opposed to just doing something virtual and like, online. Like what? Well, there's uh, in the States, I know they were doing sort of drive-through graduation ceremonies where, you know, you get in your car and you drive with the rest of the students, you know, along this line. You get out and you get your diploma. But I think what a lot of these students want to do is just postpone them until August, until we're in a a situation where you can gather in smaller, larger, but still smaller uh, gatherings and do a ceremony that way. It's so hard. With your friends. It's so hard, though, like if you put it off till August, right? Because when it comes to high school graduation, it's May and June are the two months, right, where you really focus on that. And then once graduation is over, it's a time of transition for so many of those kids. And by the time August comes, you're thinking about, oh, am I starting university? Oh, am I starting college? Oh, am I starting a job? Oh, am I like, what am I doing? Like, it, I think you're almost already moving on to the next phase by the time August rolls around. Yeah. And you know, I hadn't thought of it, but even that's an experience that will be changing for these grade 12 students. True. Before, going to university meant those nerves when you're on campus for the very first time. You're out of your high school. You're now on this huge university campus. You're trying to navigate your way to all your classes. You're meeting new friends. And with most classes, I know that UBC will be offering them online this this September. You know, you're not going to get that same experience. Simi, do you remember your high school graduation? Vividly. Do you? Of course. It wasn't that long ago. Nikki, how old do you think I am? (laughs) Come on. <laughs> yeah, hold on. I suddenly regret asking. I'm so surprised. <laughs> I was like, what are you, one of my kids treating me like I'm like ancient? Did they have high school graduations yeah. back then? Did you drive to your high school graduation? <laughs> Where did you park Did the, the horse, horse and, and buggy take you to your graduation? <laughs> Yes, I vividly remember my high school graduation. It was Point Grey Secondary, 1989. So it goes to show the significance and the importance of this one moment. I know that as adults, we kind of look back and, and trivialize it a little bit. You go, ah, it's just, you know, it's just high school. But for these kids, it's, oh, it's so absurd. significant. They've been it's working everything. for this, right? They've been working towards us. They've been told, just wait till you graduate from high school. And then they're there and they've been watching other people have all that stuff and now it's their turn and it's not there. And it's not just kids uh, in high school, I should mention here too. I know a number of university students, kind of friends of my kids and that kind of thing, who are getting a commencement this year either because of this. And right. that's that's also a huge accomplishment that you're not getting a commencement for. 
Yeah, a chance just to celebrate it and do something significant to celebrate it. Now, Cindy, full disclosure here. Yeah. Uh, I actually didn't go to my high school graduation. Why? I just, uh, like, I was that kid when I was, like, 18 years old or whatever. I already had a fake ID. Okay. I was ready to go to the I'm bar feeling with my older This is boyfriend. G-rated, Nikki. This is G-rated, the show. So we, <laughs> maybe we should not get into any of this. I love the way you get into this deep stuff when we have, like, a minute left in this show to talk about all of this. Typical therapy session. Well, our time yeah. here is coming to an end. We'll have to carry this conversation on next week. But well, not next week. Later in the show, we're going to talk about this, right? <laughs> okay, we'll bring it up later in the show. Uh, but we are going to talk to a grade 12 student, too, who is over on Vancouver Island. She has also started a similar petition that has about 3,000 signatures. So after 7.30 this morning, we'll find out what her idea is for an alternative graduation ceremony. And we'll dig into uh, the past of Nikki Reitmeyer, too, while we're at it. Thank you for that, <laughs> Nikki. This is Mornings with Simi. So in terms of politicians, who do you think has done the best job handling this pandemic? The prime minister or the premier of whichever province you live in? Well, those are the kinds of questions asked of people right across the country in the latest Ipsos public affairs poll. And Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Cindy. All right, let's talk about some of these results. Who do Canadians think is doing the better job? Oh, they like the premiers, uh, especially in British Columbia. 84% uh, approve right now of the uh, performance of, uh, of Premier Horgan, uh, compared to 71% for uh, for Justin Trudeau. Now, I should say Justin Trudeau should not be worried about 71%. That's probably among the best numbers he's ever received uh, in terms of his performance over the last five years. So everybody's doing really well, but Premier Horgan is doing especially well. So would you say that's so right across the country, people said my Premier is doing better than the Prime Minister? Uh, yeah. Um, some of it, some of areas, it's a lot tighter. So for example, uh, in, in Alberta, uh, uh, Premier Kenny and Justin Trudeau are only a couple of points apart. But uh, in all, every province, uh, people do prefer the premiers. And, that, and that's, unless uh, there's a premier who's, uh, you know, especially out of step with what's going on in, in their province, usually premiers tend to do better than right. the prime minister. Have you noticed any changes in the polling in the last month or so since you've been doing it? Yeah, not especially in this poll today, but we're, we are seeing what I would you know, kind of refer to as like hairline fractures in terms of the stability of people's willingness to stay home. So we are seeing that uh, that people are starting to break quarantine now. I think we had about 40% at least admitted on a survey that they weren't strictly following the rules. And people are anxious to get back to uh, some sense of normality. And was that right across the country? Right across the country. Now, there are aspects that, uh, that make people nervous. So, for example, uh, in, uh, in most provinces, there's a... a, a general support for doing things like reopening schools and, uh, and, and reopening businesses. But uh, uh, there is uh, some concern among the population about potentially moving too fast. But you, you can see what this is like. It's like watching the ice kind of break on a, on a, on a river um, at, at the end of the winter. You can see the cracks starting to form and it's getting ready to flow. Uh, and uh, people are a bit worried about you know, how this is going to transpire. But uh, uh, generally speaking, they think the provinces are doing a pretty good job of estimating when the best time is to reopen various uh, aspects of our lives. And I know you also asked people about how supportive they are of kind of the aid packages, right, that have been provided by government. What did they say about that? Uh, generally supportive, like in the 70s, again, you know, really, really good numbers. 
but there are in certain places, uh, you know, for example, in British Columbia or in Ontario, where life is a more expensive, particularly if you live in a place like Vancouver or Toronto, uh, where uh, $2,000 doesn't get you very far. So I think uh, based on circumstances, people tend to have a, a more supportive or a less supportive opinion. But overall, uh, the numbers of, uh, in terms of support around in the 70s, again, uh, pretty strong. Right. Are you noticing any kind of changes on that, though? Are people starting to wonder, like, how much these are going to cost? We're seeing some residual aspects of that starting to build, but it's still minority opinion, but it tends to grow from survey to survey where people are now going to start asking those questions. Uh, But we're so committed right now to doing what's necessary to get the country back on track, both in terms of the health response, but especially in terms of the economic response, that, that people uh, pretty much are trying to ignore politics as usual or judgments as neutral uh, as usual. They, they just want to get get going again. It's so fascinating, isn't it, Daryl? Because you've got this unbelievable event that has kind of paralyzed the economy with these huge job losses and all this stuff happening, and yet people are quite still supportive of of the way government is approaching this. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. Uh, The only times you tend to see it are in terms of crisis. So, for example, after 9-11, people got really on board with uh, the government's approach to that. And when when you go through some sort of a crisis, there tends to be some rallying to the flag. Uh, But this crisis itself is unprecedented. So we've seen, you know, even premiers like, for example, Doug Ford in Ontario, who was down in the 20s, is now up in the 80s. Right, and better than this, it, better than the prime minister in Ontario. Better than the prime minister. So this is an has been has been an opportunity for him to relaunch himself in many ways, reintroduce himself uh, to Ontarians in a, in a more positive way. Uh, we're, but uh, there are other people, say for example, Premier uh, Legault in, in the province of Quebec, who was already pretty strong and he just strengthened. But they're, you know. Uh, um, Doug Ford, his political career has gone through like a, a phoenix resurrection. I mean, it's he's he's now back, and uh, well, he, he never yeah. really actually during the election was even this popular. <laughs> That's so much irony in that. All right, thank you so much for that, Daryl. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO. It'll be really fascinating to talk to Daryl in, say, six months or at the end of this year to compare how Premier's approval ratings are doing at that point versus how they're doing right now. But to break it down for you by province here, British Columbia, 84% of people say they approve of the job that their Premier is doing. 71% say they believe the Prime Minister has been really strong on this. In Alberta, interesting numbers here. Jason Kenney, 64%. That is the lowest of all the premiers right across the country in terms of approval ratings. Uh, the, the prime minister, 62%. So I'm pretty sure they won't be too happy to see Jason Kenney that close to the approval rating of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's as well in Alberta. So some surprising numbers there. Everywhere else, it's, it's higher. 73 Saskatchewan, Manitoba, 82 in Ontario, as Daryl mentioned, 83 in Quebec, 85% in Atlantic Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. A very interesting story out of the United States this week that we wanted to talk about. It's the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. They took a shot at British Columbia, wanting to know why the government here is allowing tech resources to contaminate a water source. Starts in B.C., but stretches down to Idaho and Montana. 
Now, the downstream effects of that pollution, they say, have become a big concern in those areas. And that's why the EPA is demanding some answers from the BC government. We wanted to dive a little deeper into this story about what's going on here. What kind of contamination are we talking about? Joining us now is Lars Sander Green, the Mining Science and Communications Analyst with the Environmental Protection Group WildSite. Joins me now to explain what is happening in that Elk River watershed. Lars, thank you for being here. Thanks. Morning. How long have how long have we known that this is a problem there? Uh, this this problem has been known for decades and decades. You know, BC first had a task force to look into this problem in the nineties. So it's certainly been known for a long time, and it's certainly known for a number of years that the selenium levels, this water pollution in Lake Kukunusa, which is a, a shared reservoir between Canada and the United States, have just been going up and up and up. So if it's been decades, why why hasn't anything been done? Well, I mean, the short answer is the tech's making a lot of money at coal mining in the Elk Valley, and there's been a lot of promises about cleaning up this problem, and they haven't really been fulfilled. So you're saying they have been asked to clean up, because now they're saying they will start and spend about a billion dollars, they said, and have it all cleaned up by 2024. Well, Tech has a, a plan that goes back about six or seven years now to build water treatment plants. And these water treatment plants are supposed to treat the water that's coming off these waste rock piles at the mine. Unfortunately, they've built one of these. They've had a lot of problems with it. They've spent a lot of money on it. It's supposedly working now. They're thinking about they've got a couple more in progress. But really, those are just going to knock the very highest levels of pollution down a little bit in the short term. The real problem that everyone's looking at here is this pollution is going to flow for thousands of years. No one's going to be running these expensive water treatment plants, you know, even 100 years into the future. So what's the real long-term plan? And that's what no one has heard either, you know, in the United States or in Canada. Right. I mean, I, I tend to think that if this were the reverse, you know, if we were being impacted by something, people here would be very upset by that. Absolutely. I think they would. And yet, has the BC government done anything to compel tech to fix this in a more timely fashion? You know, there's been a lot of talk about that, but there has been very little they would call compelling. Uh, you know, one of the things that the EPA points out in their letter is that BC and tech work together to set some limits, which were quite high pollution limits. Uh, but just a few years after they set those limits, tech just exceeded those limits, they're polluting over those limits, and BC hasn't done anything about it. What is the impact of that type of pollution that we're seeing there? So the selenium pollution is something that causes often birth defects in fish or just a complete reproductive failure. So we can have, you know... In some areas, like right downstream from the mine, we've had a uh, population collapse in recent years. We've seen 93% less of the adult, like low cuts or trout that live there. Uh, in other streams, we've seen even 96% less of the juvenile fish. So we've seen big collapses, you know, immediately downstream of the mine. Mm-hmm. When we go further down to the U.S. border, pollution levels are a little bit lower but there's still a lot of concern that what's happened upstream could soon happen downstream. Right. What has the BC government's response been on all of this, Lars? Well, there's been a lot of talk, uh, and, you know, they're working with tech, and they want to 
try to make things better and they're talking to the U.S. and they're trying to come up with a shared standard, a shared pollution limit for Lake Kukunusa, so that was that, you know, between B.C. and Montana. Unfortunately, the facts on the ground aren't changing and that's what's really important. Right. What does this say, though, about how we treat uh, environmental issues? This must be very frustrating when you've been following along on this story for years to know that well, it just keeps on going like this. It is very frustrating and I think it it speaks to how we think of ourselves in BC. You know, we tend to think we're pretty environmentally conscious and we think, oh, we have pretty good regulation and we're keep taking care of the environment and we're being good neighbors. And the reality is, especially in this case, that we're not. And when we look at some of the regulations in the US, like in Montana or Alaska, it'd actually be a lot stronger in this case than what we have in BC. So some people say that BC is still the wild west of mining and that's definitely been our experience is you can kind of get away with a lot. I know you've written about some of the pollution and you mentioned the birth defects in fish, but do we know how this has impacted the population, the different fish populations there? Well, the only really big impacts we've seen have just been the ones directly downstream of the mines. So that I mentioned earlier, those basically collapses over the last two years. There's certainly also a lot of concern about what's going on in Lake Kukunusa. There, there's a lot of different fish species in the lake there, and because the water is moving a lot lower, you get a buildup in the food web. But we don't know exactly what's happening there or downstream in the Kootenai River in the U.S., um, but I think that's something that right now we've got quite a bit of research in the U.S. that's going on, and even looking at that pollution coming back into Canada, because, of course, the Kootenai River runs about 200 kilometers through Montana and Idaho and then flows back into British Columbia. Right. Are you hopeful, though, like this kind of attention when you got the Environmental Protection Agency saying, hey, BC, you need to work harder on this? Are you hopeful that might make a difference? We're certainly hoping it will make some difference. Uh, what's coming right now is, despite all these problems, uh, Tech has actually applied for a major expansion, and that's just going into the environmental assessment process. Uh, it's called Castle Mountain. It's going to be a 25-square-kilometer coal mine in the Elk Valley as well, which would have all of the same problems that we're seeing with all the five existing mines. So we're hopeful that some of these discussions are going to be had in that environmental assessment process and some of the concerns that are coming from, from the U.S., but as well as, well as from Canada, are going to be heard a little bit. Right. All right, Lars, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's Lars Sander Green. He's the Mining Science and Communications Analyst with the Environmental Protection Group WildSite. Joining us is Andrew Gage, staff lawyer at West Coast Environmental Law. Andrew, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Have you seen a letter like this before? Has the BC government received something like this? Uh, I'm not aware of anything from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. There have been other letters received about the uh, Valley contamination from uh, senators in the United States, as well as um, uh, about potential or, or contamination uh, from BC mines in the, on the, across the Alaska border, um, but uh, not from the Environmental Protection Agency that's actually charged with enforcing environmental laws in the States. Right. So what does that mean for BC then? This seems like a very official complaint. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure that the letter by itself. I mean, you know, clearly, clearly, it's embarrassing, and the, the BC government, uh, I think, has already said they're they're going to try to provide the information that the EPA is looking for and reassure them. Um, but there are some, I guess, 
potential consequences. Um, one is that um, uh, there's a there's a treaty between Canada and the U.S. Uh, related to cross uh, boundary waters, uh, and under that treaty, uh, I can, there's a body set up that has representation from both Canada and the U.S. called the International Joint Commission mm-hmm. that can consider complaints related to um, you know, one party. Um, degrading the water or, or interfering with the water flow of the other. Um, so, you know, it was actually the International Joint Commission that that some years ago it really established in, in international law that you can't pollute the water of a uh, of another body. It was over um, operations by tech in in the um, not in Elk, the Elk Valley, but uh, in the region. Um, so there's that. There, there's potentially less. Con- possibly less concerning for the BC government. I mean, there is some potential that there could be, um, uh, I guess, a lawsuit filed by the um, US EPA or by American citizens, uh, either in the US or in Canada. Um, But why has tech been allowed to exceed these levels that have been established by the BC government for so long? Well, that's that's a great question, and unfortunately, I mean, the the the, the province of BC actually has a, a, an extraordinarily poor track record of enforcing environmental laws, especially against mining companies. Um, the the province knew that there was a, a problem with selenium with these mines going back decades, as you said, and and did um, uh, really did nothing for ages. And and you know, if the problem had been nipped in the bud, uh, it wouldn't be such a big problem now. Um, Prevent of prevention is worth a pound of cure, uh, but but really since the um, since the 90s, um, you know, after the 90s, the the level of of enforcement action taken by BC government under the Environmental Management Act, the main the main statute that uh, relates to pollution in BC, has has it crashed in in the early 2000s and has never. Uh, all those all the ticketing, which is sort of you know a minor um, uh, punishment, has, has has gone gone back up. Um, the rate of of charges and convictions has never returned to what it was previously. Right. So, in other words, we're still it's still happening, and there's no plan really to stop it from happening. Well, in, in the instance, you, you mean uh, the lack of enforcement, or or, or yeah, the lack of enforcement. Pollution? Yeah, I mean they they have. I, I, we and other groups have certainly been calling on the government to actually restore uh, protection. They have they have increased the level of of um, staff that are, are responsible for enforcing these acts, but the enforcement levels are still sort of languishing. Um, in terms of the Elk Valley in particular, I mean the government has put in place various orders and um, a, a a plan, but it hasn't really resulted in the types of reductions that I think many of us are are looking for. So. Um, yeah, I'm sure the government and tech would say it was a work in progress, and that they're going to continue um, working on that. Uh, you know, if you or I continued to violate the law on an ongoing basis, there would be more consequences. And there is an element of, you know, is tech too big to be uh, to, to face real consequences? It's clearly a difficult problem at this point. Tech is doing a lot, a lot, but um, the province clearly is reluctant to step in with a big uh, you know, ha- hammer or whatever um, against a company that has uh, it provided so much employment. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's Andrew Gage, staff lawyer at West Coast Environmental Law. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We're getting into that time now, May and June. Those were always, usually, the very critical months for high school seniors because it was the month of parties and fun and ceremonies and all of that that doesn't look like it's going to be happening. To talk more about kids who are trying to do something differently now, we're joined by Nikki Reitmeyer once again. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, and don't forget, of course, this would typically be the weekend that you would do the May long weekend camping trip for the grads. Right. I get the feeling that you told us earlier you didn't go to your ceremony, but I have a feeling you all, you did participate in all the events leading up to the ceremony. <laughs> Am I correct? Yeah, I wasn't too. By the time graduation came around, I was ready to like get on with my life. So I can't say that I was the most active grade 12 student or that I had the best school <laughs> spirit. I don't know. I mean, the idea of, you know, you put on the dress and you get into the limousine and drink a bunch of baby duck, it just didn't really <laughs> appeal to, well, in hindsight, that actually does sound like something I'd be interested in. It totally but, does. Who are you kidding? <laughs> at the time, I thought, ah, forget it. So, no, as mentioned earlier, I had my fake ID. I thought I was pretty cool at the time. So <laughs> I was going out to the bar with my older friends. Oh, look at and, you. Uh, I know. So cool, right? Roll I know. My eyes. Uh, but, but let's, uh, let's no, talk about what the I, kids today are doing, though, because they still want their ceremonies. Well, yeah, and I get why they want their ceremonies, because so much of our culture uh, shows us that, that graduation, it's so significant, it's so important. I mean, how many movies have you seen that are based all on that final moment of grade 12 and the build-up to it, be it the parties or the camping trips or just that moment when you get to throw your cap in the air? And students this year aren't going to have that same experience that they've been dreaming of for their whole lives up until this period. And one of those students is Brianna Gruber. She's a grade 12 student at Belmont Secondary, really disappointed pointed to hear that her graduation ceremony, it's going to be online, but essentially it's just going to be a live streamed video that features some student photos and some speeches. So I had a chance to speak to her about a petition that she started for a better grad ceremony. It must have been really disappointing for you to find out that you weren't going to be having that traditional grad experience, what you see in the movies. Yeah, I was yeah, super upset. All my friends are super upset to hear that we wouldn't be like having that traditional grad ceremony. So we were, when we heard the news that it was just going to be like an online video one, we were definitely really sad. What is it about the traditional grad experience that you think you're going to be missing out on? I feel like it's your last memories of high school. So it's like everybody talks about their grad ceremony. Like my mom talks about it all the time and my grandparents talk about it all the time. And it's just such a huge memory in people's lives and to just not have that basically like completely you feel like you're missing out on such a huge thing. Yeah, it's funny, I guess now, if the grad ceremony goes ahead as it's sort of scheduled to do in the form that it's supposed to be in, it certainly will be something that you talk about for years to come, but maybe not for all the right reasons. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like, you might remember it and you'll be like, oh my goodness, like, this is not how I wanted to remember it because it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's going to be an upsetting memory rather than a like happy one. What do you think it is about your final year, your grade 12 year, that's so special? I think it's because it's like your most fun year because you have like all your friends that you're going to be graduating with and it's like your last memories of high school and there's just so many like fun things about it because I know right before um, we got put on like quarantine and everything, you can't go out anymore, no school or anything. We were having so much fun like me and my grad class with each other and we were like all these events leading up to like our graduation it was just something to look forward to because you look forward to it 
all your years of school. You're like, oh my gosh, my grad, that's like the best, most important thing. And then for us to just be completely shut down, no grad, it's just super sad. So you started a petition with an alternative idea as to what a grad ceremony could be. What's that idea? Um, my idea was to either postpone it or to have like a smaller grad and it would be outside and it'd be small groups of grads and stuff like that. And we'd still have a stage and everything and we could get our diplomas. It would just be like more personal than just the video. So like we'd still kind of have the memory. Yeah. And you could still put on your dress and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. We'll get to our capping down and our dresses underneath or whatever we wanted. It was like, I feel like it's just more personal than a video. But you can't be the only one who feels this way. How popular has your petition been? It's been really popular. I was super surprised. I expected just like my grad class to sign, but I think it has over 2,600 signatures now. I was just like, it surprised me. Well, you know, there's lots of different people who listen to this radio station, uh, politicians and teachers and school administrative staff. So if there is anyone listening right now that you would like to send a message to to hopefully get your petition approved, what would you like to say? Um, I think I just want to say that, you know, we would, because nobody wants to come off as entitled at all, like no, none of the grads. I think we just want to be able to make the memories everybody else has made. And I think it's like fair of us. So, you know, have some sort of decision making in that because it's our last years of school. So we're just hoping that we could get people to reconsider if, you know, all of us kind of help. You mentioned the word entitled. Has anyone said that to you? Is that the feedback that you've been getting from people? Is that you guys just sound like a bunch of entitled kids? Um, yeah, I've got that from a couple people. And it's like, well, take what you can get. You know, this is entitled this and stuff like that. And personally, like, I'm not expecting... I'm obviously not expecting a grad at UVic. Like, that's where we usually have it with, you know, thousands of people in there and stuff like that. I completely, and, like, all my other grads that I know, we all understand that, like, we don't want to put anybody at risk or in danger at all. Like, we just want to be able to have some sort of a somewhat traditional grad just just for us to, like, make the memories and for our parents to see. But, yeah, no, there's no, it's not coming from a place of entitlement or, like, you know, you need to give us this. And I don't want to put any pressure on, like, the school board to just come up with ideas either because I'm totally, like, willing to help. And so are so many people just, like, come up with ideas and come up with the planning. And you know what I mean? It's just parents are willing to help, I've been told. So it's just I feel like I just want to work together, not put the burden on somebody else to figure it out for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that you guys do end up doing something for grad that is extra special, a little bit more special, perhaps, than what's already been planned. I know that it's not going to be your typical traditional graduation ceremony because of the circumstances, but I hope at least that whatever does happen, it leaves you with with positive memories, with happy memories when you look back on this graduating year. Thank you. I hope so, too. That's Brianna Gruber, grade 12 student at Belmont Secondary on Vancouver Island, and Nikki was talking to her. So, Nikki, like, what about a drive-through grad? Yeah, this is a concept that we've seen in the States. Basically, students get in their cars and they drive through this long line where they end up getting their diploma, maybe a picture taken. Well, Superintendent Scott Stinson of that district said that he did think about that idea, but ultimately decided that it wouldn't work well enough to fully obey the rules of social distancing. 
but in some of our schools, 360 to 400 graduates. And any time we looked at scheduling that, it always meant that at some point they were either gathering at the beginning to line up or at the end once they'd gone through. In absence of a better idea, this is, this is kind of where we are at this point. So if they have imaginative ideas that fit within the constraints that, that we have to live by, then I'm all ears. All right. We'll see what we can do about that. Nikki, thank you. Thank you very much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that testing for COVID-19 is evolving as health officials react to new information about the virus that we seem to be learning every day. And we keep hearing like, oh, we can't get back to normal until we have widespread testing. What does all that mean? I mean, can anyone get a test or anyone with symptoms? What are the parameters for all this? Well, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry has just published an editorial that goes into detail on how testing has changed and what the next phase of all of this might look like. And she joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. You really wanted to talk about testing in your editorial. Why did you feel that this was an important time to address this? Uh, Well, um, I get questions, as you know, all the time about testing, and I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and we we hear and we see what's happening in other countries and, you know, the WHO recommendations that come out, and what exactly does it mean? And so I wanted to put out um, what we have been using here in BC, uh, our testing strategy, and how it has changed and will continue to change as we we get new tests, as we understand uh, more about the virus and... uh, make sure that people had that understanding. And what do you think are some of those big misconceptions that people have? Yeah, you know, that there's any value to testing just randomly everybody. (laughs) And when we talk about, you know, test, 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 it really is about making sure that we're testing people who might actually have the disease. And so that's what we focused on here in BC. The challenge that we have is that these tests aren't 100% accurate. So no test is really. It's not like turning on a light switch where it's either on or off. (laughs) So we have to um, understand uh, what we're getting into if we test somebody. So if we test somebody who doesn't have any symptoms, who hasn't been around anybody um, who has COVID-19, their chances of of, um, if they come back with a positive test, it's 50-50 whether they actually have the virus or not. And if they come back with a negative test, it doesn't really tell us anything. And why do you mean it doesn't really tell us anything? Well, because we know that this test can't actually, uh, it's not as accurate early on in the disease and when people have no symptoms. So it may be that you're incubating the disease and you will test positive in a few hours or another day. So it's it's very challenging um, to to understand how we can uh, use the tests and if they have a false positive or a false negative, and so that's what we have to do in the in our in my role and uh, our lab scientists is um, make sure we understand what the chances are that this test is going to be really accurate for that individual person. So then, what do you think then of these jurisdictions, I and mean, even right next door in Alberta, where they believe that more and more and more testing is the way to go? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a little bit of a misunderstanding at some levels about what exactly um, we absolutely need to do more testing. And we have here in BC, we've opened up so anybody with symptoms in the community, and we want to make sure that even the mildest symptoms, if you um, if you have 
anything that you think might be this that uh, you have access to testing, well, to assessment first. We want to make sure that we understand, you know, what your risk is so that we can tell you what the test means when it comes back. So uh, you get an assessment, you can be tested. But we also want to make sure we have tests for those situations that we know it's important to, to test everybody. So, for example, we've had a number of community outbreaks lately um, in uh, poultry processing plants, and we tested everybody there because we knew everybody had a chance of having this virus. So we could understand um, who was positive, who was early on in, in the in potentially in their symptoms, and make sure that we could um, address that and make sure we could support people if they were getting sick with this. And how do you feel about contact tracing then? And how close is BC to adopting some of that? Oh, we have been doing contact tracing from the very beginning. So these things go hand in hand. We uh, we need to, um, this is the role that we play in public health. And there's, uh, my colleagues are out there and have been from right. uh, early January. But what about so the apps? We folk- uh, the, the the apps. Uh, so what we want is um, something that helps us do our job. And right now, there's a whole bunch of apps out there, but they, they don't necessarily um, add any benefit or value to the way we're doing our job right now. We're testing some of them out. They're all voluntary. So when we contact them, the most important thing is being able to find everybody that had a real contact that put them at risk. And we know from this virus and we, as we're learning more and more that it's those people that you are close to, um, that you spend time with, that you can exchange air with. So that can be a whole variety of people. But um, So we need an app that helps us find those people. Most people, though, um, it, we do a lot of work in public health of talking to individuals, and we are very good at finding out where they've been and helping jog their memory. And, you know, an app can assist in that. But there isn't anything right now where we think um, uh, it's going to, uh, you know, giving a whole bunch of people messages that they might have been somewhere close to somebody hasn't proven to be particularly helpful. But we are working on some things that we think might be uh, more benefit. And how do you feel British Columbians have done so far? I think it's pretty clear over the last week people are starting to let their guard down a little bit. How do you feel about that? You know, uh, I think we've done incredibly well. People have taken this to heart. They've been supportive of each other. We've been uh, we've been making those sacrifices on an individual level for our families, for our communities, and it's it's paid off. Uh, we've made a huge difference in the number of people who've been sick, and I think we we need to remember that this has affected every community. And even though um, the the people who've tested positive is just a subset, but all of those people that have been contacts that we've followed in public health, those people who've traveled, who've um, developed this illness, it's it's been widespread in our community. But we've done the right things to protect our healthcare system and to protect our communities. And we need to continue to be cautious. And I think people are taking this carefully. We know we we, we need a little bit of, of a break. We need to get outside. We need to um, increase our social ties. But we need to do it in a very measured way. And we're seeing that around the world now as people are starting to to open up our economies and our social networks again. We are going to see some more illness. So this is, again, how it's really important that anybody who is sick needs to stay home, stay away from others. And if it seems like it's anything related to COVID-19, then they can get a test here in BC. When you you say that, it makes it sound like, like maybe the numbers will go up a little bit in the next few weeks, do you think? Uh, you know, I uh, 
looking at what has happened in other countries, I do think that will will happen. I think we have a very low level of it circulating in our community right now, and if we're careful, we'll be able to control it and manage it. And we all need to be careful. And you know, that's it. We need to recognize if we're not feeling well and stay away from others. You know, that's going to be really, really important. And we need to keep up our our safe distancing um, when we're in uh, in areas around others outside of our home. So that's something that can't change right now. You know, our cleaning our hands regularly, covering our mouth when we cough, and maintaining those safe distances. Those are the things that are going to keep us going through this next uh, challenging few months. All right, Dr. Henry, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course, our provincial health officer, expanding on the idea of testing. She's also written about it. Uh, You can see that online if you just Google the words Dr. Bonnie Henry and Opinion Editorial. She talks a lot about some of the misconceptions about testing. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, it is time for Making Sense of the Markets with Lori Pinkowski. Lori is the Senior Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Raymond James. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are those markets? Markets are a bit in the red today. We've got the TSX down 235 points at 14,646. The S&P 500 down 41 points. Uh, we've got the Dow down uh, 420 points right now at 23,346. Uh, so basically we're off uh, just over 1.5% today. Uh, we've got the Canadian U.S. dollar sitting just above 70 cents. Gold up $16 uh, an ounce right now and uh, crude oil kind of flat on the day. Okay, are there leaders, though, in the markets that you can see out there? Uh, there definitely are. I mean, it's it's kind of normal to see the markets consolidating after we've had such a strong rebound. There's obviously jitters about the economy reopening and what that looks like. So, again, the markets don't like uncertainty, although we know this is a, a necessary process that we're all going through in terms of reopening. And, and when you look at the unemployment numbers that we got out last Friday, uh, we definitely want to see people going back to work. So the question is, is again, um, what does that look like? Uh, what sectors are being affected? And I keep on um, mentioning this, that when you look at the market and you have the markets down, say, for instance, today or yesterday, you know, it doesn't mean that every sector, every stock is down. So it's very um, stock-specific right now. You have a large divergence within the markets. And so growth and defensive sectors have really led the recovery. Uh, so when you think of technology, healthcare, consumer staples, and things that haven't been doing as well, which we've touched on, financials and energy, which are both off still more uh, or higher than uh, 25 30% this year. And so, again, as an investor, depending on where your portfolio has been allocated is how, you've, how your experience has been throughout this downturn in the market. So, again, it's, it's very important to make sure that your financial advisor has you in the right sectors and just isn't sticking their head in the sand during this time. I've said the world has changed. You've got to change with it. Uh, so it's important as we go throughout this process. And again, markets don't recover over a matter of weeks after you go through something like what we did in March. It can take months. So you have time. Just make sure that you're with the, fi- the right financial advisor and also make sure that you're in the right sectors that will take you back to where you were at least within the next few months. Yeah. Do you see some opportunities potentially out there? Definitely. I mean, when you look at markets, they're still down 20%, 15 to 20% from the high. There's definitely sectors and stocks that are still looking decent out there. The sectors that we're adding to, and also a lot of dividend-paying stocks, right? I mean, when you look at some of the dividends out there, you're able to get 4 or 5%. 
well, that's a heck of a lot better than sitting in money market right now that may be earning, you know, 1%. So it, it, this is definitely a conversation you want to have with your financial advisor. Uh, for us, we're active managers, so we're always looking for those opportunities. Where can we um, allocate funds to for our clients in the most conservative way? Uh, you know, we're always looking at the risk-reward of owning any equity for a client, and as well looking at the bond market as well. I mean, all those areas are really important to review right now and just making sure that your portfolio is in the right areas to get you back to where you were. Uh, let's talk about some of those employment numbers that we've been hearing about that, you know, all over North America, the U.S., Canada, and even B.C., yeah, definitely. So last Friday we got the report. Um, I mean, unemployment in Canada is up to 13%, uh, which is the worst since 1982. We lost about 2 million jobs, and many of them were full-time. Uh, the U.S., very similar. They lost about 20 million jobs. Uh, unemployment rate is just shy of 15%. And so take a look at those numbers. They're obviously huge. Uh, but markets rallied on that news because they weren't as bad as, uh, as, as one thought or one expected. And so that was kind of shocking probably to a lot of investors. Uh, again, there's talk that that is, you know, we're at peak numbers right now. So things can only get better from here is the idea. I mean, there's always, um, you know, the question about a, another phase uh, of the virus, um, another surge, all those sorts of things. But we know a lot more today than we did back in March when the market uh, totally broke down there. Um, so, again, if that were to happen, if the economy reopens and then it has to shut down again, I think the markets would react uh, not as violently as they did in March. Um, but when you take a look at the jobs numbers in B.C., for instance, B.C. was actually better off than a lot of the country, Derek. I say. Uh, the rate was 11.5%. The province lost over 420,000 jobs. Again, the greatest losses that we know, of course, food service industry, uh, the retail sector. Uh, and I mean, the good news is that hopefully we're reopening here. We're talking about May 19th. I mean, you're talking to Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, who has all the information and had her fingertips, yeah. you know, uh, which is uh, which is fantastic. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the economy reopen. I want to see what that looks like. Of course, we have to do it uh, in stages, make sure it's safe uh, for for B.C. and for the, uh, the rest of the world. But again, we need to start seeing things reopen. Uh, let's talk about planning for retirement then, because that, you know, maybe people have put that on hold right now. But after this is all over, is that going to be challenging? Yeah, you know, transitioning into retirement under normal conditions can be uh, a bit stressful for people as we take so many people from their working years into retirement. So uh, we're, we're definitely experts in this area. Um, you know, many clients are very happy when they make the decision to retire. Of course, the COVID situation has a few levels of extra stress, including, you know, possible financial concerns, um, you know, uh, cash flow concerns, or if they were, you know, thinking about selling their business, uh, if they were, you know, considering working for one more year, you know, all these sorts of questions can be on someone's mind. Uh, so you want to make sure that uh, you're talking to your financial advisor about any concerns that you have at this point. Um, you know, but what I would say is that, you know, there are corrections like this uh, every few years in the markets, at least. Um, you know, there's political uncertainty. Um, you know, we're wondering about the housing market. Um, you know, about a recession and when will the global pandemic end. So if you're about to retire, you may be worried about all of these things, right? And it can cause some anxiety. Um, but again, the world will get over this. It's just it will look different. And that's where I'm saying, you know, it's, it's important to make sure your portfolio is in the right areas. But it's also important that you have a financial retirement plan. Make sure that you're updating it if you are concerned um, and see what uh, kind of things look like as we progress out of this pandemic 
and back into kind of the new normal, as they're as they're saying. And so, so there obviously are concerns when one retires anyway, uh, but there really doesn't have to be as long as you have a financial retirement plan in place and you're talking to your financial advisor. Right. That's going to be super challenging for people, though, isn't it? That's a whole new mindset for a lot of people. Well, it is. And I think another part of this is just that people had a lot of retirement plans, yeah. such as traveling, uh, such as, you know, seeing their families and all those sorts of things. And they're just wondering when that will happen. Because when you're thinking about the age group that is looking at retirement or is already retired, those are also the people that need to be extra cautious uh, and have been isolating at home and things like that, uh, even more so uh, than others. And so it's really important uh, to be having these open conversations about, um, you know, what retirement looks like going forward. Again, I think, you know, when we look six to 12 months out, we're probably going to be looking at, uh, you know, retirement just the way that we always did. Uh, We will be able to travel and so on, but we just don't know at this point. What's important to make sure that cash flow uh, is there uh, for when you do retire, if you've just retired, um, you know, in case that you need to budget or cut spending or any of those sorts of things when the economy does open up. So it is important to, uh, you know, always focus on the future um, and make sure that you're taking a look at your financial plan again and ensuring that it's, uh, you know, up to date for the current environment. As always, great advice. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski, Senior Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Raymond James. Now you can contact her team directly at 604-915-LORI or visit their website at pinkowski.ca.